Hello and welcome to podcast three of the year, December 1918, Dr. Stevens and the Spanish Flu. Today's episode is rather dark and rather chilling, which seems fitting as I'm recording this from my home in Gdynia in the darkness before dawn, overlooking a snow-encrusted and wind-chilled frozen landscape. War and pestilence have gone hand in hand for thousands of years. On many occasions, a much greater killer than the invading armies has been the germs that they brought with them. The most infamous examples, for me, are the intentional spreading of smallpox by British troops among the indigenous populations of North America and also among the Aborigines of Australia. Whether the conquistadors intentionally did the same in South and Central America is unclear, but it is clear that the decisive factor in their conquest of the Americas was the depopulation of the New World by European diseases, which eventually killed off somewhere between 80 and 95% of Native American populations. The Mongols certainly did intend to spread the plague when they flung plague-ridden corpses over the walls of various European cities that they were sieging, but it is unclear whether they can be cited as the instigators of the Great Plague that ravaged Europe in the following century. I warmly encourage everyone who hasn't already read it to read Guns, Germs and Steel by Jared Diamond. It is without a doubt one of my favourite books of all time and has had a profound influence on my worldview. Since concluding my obsession with the historical period 1918-1919, my new history obsession is paleoanthropology. And recently I've been wondering whether disease was the final nail in the Neanderthal coffin 30,000 years ago. The Neanderthal population was very small when we entered Europe from Africa. And small populations of Neanderthals in Ice Age Europe were much less likely to harbour infectious diseases than larger populations of Homo sapiens coming out of tropical Africa. So rather than our weaponry or our gathering skills, or our large groupings, or faster reproduction rates, it could have been our diseased nature that killed off our nearest relatives and left us as the only human species on the planet. Anyway, I digress. Paleoanthropology will for sure be the subject of some later project of mine, but for now, let us return to December 1918. World War I was the most lethal war in history up to that point. And fittingly, it is also linked to the most lethal pandemic in history, which emerged during the final months of the conflict. And here is my story about it. December 1918, Dr. Stevens and the Spanish Flu. There have been as many plagues as wars in history. Yet always, wars and plagues take people equally by surprise. Albert Camus the plague. If only he had a microscope, Dr. Philip Stevens mused. Then this featureless room could reveal a different unseen world to him and alleviate the eviscerating boredom. Dr. Philip Stevens had always been interested in germs, indeed in all things that cause infections. He had grown up in Auckland, New Zealand, the son of a doctor who bought him a microscope for his 10th birthday. It was 1905 and he was probably the only kid in all New Zealand to have a microscope and it made him very popular. He and his friends never tired of exploring the world that wasn't visible to the naked eye, especially as his father's friend, Professor Algernon Thomas, or Professor Algie, a nickname he himself encouraged, 
would give them each tuppence for every species that they found that didn't already have a name. He would say to them that they were doing better scientific research than the deadbeat scientists he had to cope with in this colonial backwater. 1905 was a bright time to be growing up in New Zealand, even if it was a colonial backwater. The resources of the islands were making the population rich and the general election ensured that New Zealand would become a dominion, fully in control of its own destiny. The Tohunga, barbaric witch doctors of the Maoris, charlatans that preyed on their own kind, had been outlawed by Parliament and Western medicine was bringing the Maoris into the 20th century. And on the 11th of December 1908, at the age of 13, Philip Stevens had decided to become a scientist. He decided this fact after reading in the paper that New Zealander Ernest Rutherford was the first New Zealander to be awarded a Nobel Prize. Rutherford, like Stevens, was looking at the world beyond the visible. Stevens resolved that he too would one day win a Nobel Prize. Two years before the war, Stevens had been accepted into Auckland University's biology department and his supervising professor was none other than his friend and mentor, Professor Algy. But once the war broke out, Stevens put in a request to transfer to medicine. He wanted to cram for a medical degree so that he could go and be of some use in the war effort. Professor Algy was deeply upset that his star pupil was going to become a mere physician. Good God, Philip, the war will be over by Christmas. It is no reason to disrupt your research. The old man had tears in his eye. He'd always been very paternal towards Stevens, who'd always shown much more interest in science than any of his own children. But Stevens would not be swayed. In record time, Philip Stevens achieved his medical degree. He graduated with honours in a special emergency ceremony arranged for him and one other war doctor-to-be on the 1st of March 1916. And the very next day, Dr. Philip Stevens signed up for the British Imperial Army. Despite being a medical recruit, he was required to undertake basic training. He endured two months of crawling under wire, bayoneting bags of wool, and being ridiculed by his fellow recruits when it became clear that not only was he probably the worst shot in the entire New Zealand army, but that quite possibly he was the worst shot in the whole of New Zealand. Those two months seemed longer to him than the two years of his medical degree. Finally, on the 6th of May, he, and 2,556 fresh recruits were shipped off to Egypt. During the 38-day voyage, while his comrades used the time to do more exercising, fighting and shooting, Stevens passed the time by making health records for everyone on board. They were a remarkably healthy bunch of young men, leaving Dr. Stevens with little medical work to do other than patching up soldiers after the weekly boxing matches. This voyage was the first time Stevens had come into close contact with Maoris. There weren't any in his university, nor in the circles that he and his parents had moved in. Most of what he knew about them was drawn from medical journals, which tended to emphasise their lack of resistance to common ailments. So it was something of a shock to discover how strong and fit they were, contrasting to his own rather slender physique. They had barely set foot on Egyptian soil when they were herded onto another troop ship to Southampton and to Sling Camp on Salisbury Plain, where they joined up with New Zealand troops who had fought in the Gallipoli campaign. Stevens marvelled at how small Britain seemed. In his imagination, he had anticipated it to be full of giant buildings, 
vast roadways and imposing monuments. There was, however, one monument that did take his breath away, Stonehenge. It was less than an hour's cycle ride from their camp, and he went there on several occasions. The others teased him that he was performing druidic rituals as they saw him scraping away in the cracks where the great slabs of blue rock joined together. Stevens knew that he couldn't find ancient bacteria, but there was no harm in looking. He just wanted to know something about a world so far removed from his own that it made the Maoris and their totems feel familial. People much more alien, yet also people who were his ancestors, had created these megaliths of stone. Stones that precisely plotted the summer and winter solstices. His friends, well, acquaintances really, they were sheep farmers, builders, labourers, none of them too interested in his pursuits, climbed around on the stones as the late summer sun set, drinking beer, ignoring for one night their curfew, while Stevens wondered at the marvel of it all. It was the summer solstice, and it was also their last night in England. Tomorrow, they were headed for the Western Front. Later on, looking back on it from the vantage point of being an experienced frontline doctor, Stephen still couldn't find the words that could begin to describe the experience of his first days at the front. They had arrived on the 28th of June, and three days later the Battle of Somme had begun. He would get up at 6am and go for a walk, away from the field hospital, away from the front, and breathe in a slither of normality in the small patches of forest that hung on tenuously as oases in the vast shelled wasteland. Observing the insects, identifying birds and the plant life, just something to connect him to the real world. At 8.30am he would go around all the casualties that he had tended to or operated on the night before so that he was clear of this by 10am when, like clockwork, a new intake of men with punctured lungs, blown off faces, mutilated limbs, torsos riddled with bullet holes would start coming in. There would be a steady stream of them until well after dark. At about 1am he would collapse, utterly spent, into his bunk and sleep would be upon him in seconds. He was thankful for that. And that was his routine for the four months of the Somme campaign. After that, his unit had moved around until they got bogged down in the mud of Passchendaele. Simply unimaginable, unreal amounts of mud. The loss of life was high there, but never again would it be as bad as their baptism of fire at the Somme. That is, until the Spanish flu. Dr Stevens first noticed this when the line started to move in the summer of 1918. Trench warfare turned into open country fighting as the Germans were routed. His medical station was now many miles behind the line, and coming back to him, outnumbering the wounded, were the sick. They appeared to have flu-like symptoms, but these quickly progressed into a sort of full-blown pneumonia. And the men who contracted the sickness were among the strongest and healthiest in his division. It looked like the common flu, but it didn't behave like the common flu. Flu struck in the cold depths of winter, and it struck at the weak, the ill, the malnourished, the old, and children. This sickness was striking down otherwise healthy young men in the middle of summer, and his troops, the New Zealanders, were the biggest and strongest and healthiest young men in all the Allied forces. He wrote a report and sent it to HQ, but no one was interested in flu. They were finally winning the war. Illness was a casualty of war. 
Stevens noticed also that the Maoris in his force fared the worst. For some reason they were more susceptible than their white comrades. Was it because they were stronger? Or was it because of something different in their racial makeup related to their increased susceptibility to other illnesses not indigenous to the Southern Pacific? When he had been knocked back by his superiors, Dr. Stevens tried to make contact with Dr. Twart, a brilliant British bacteriologist. He'd read Twart's 1915 paper and knew that the doctor had joined the British Army. If there was one man who would take his concerns seriously, it was Dr. Twart. He wrote a letter outlining his theory that something deadly, even more deadly than the war, stealthily concealed within its carnage, was about to envelop humanity. A virus that attacked the strong, men in their prime, and by God the world had already lost enough of them for one generation. What Stevens couldn't have known was that Dr. Twart was working in a secret military laboratory in Greece, and it is doubtful that Stevens' letter would have ever made it through. Dr. Stevens wasn't sleeping. After his midnight rounds, he spent the hours until dawn trying to calculate statistically, based on the small sample group of his battalion, what effect this virus would be having on the wider world. He checked and rechecked his findings, and finally, believing that not even the British High Command, famous for its myopia, could fail to see the truth that Stevens had uncovered, sent off his report on the eve of the armistice. It stated that on no account should there be any celebrations once the war ended, because of the fact that there existed among the troops a contagion that would spread through the crowds like wildfire and administer death on a scale that even the German big guns and mustard gas had failed to achieve. Of course his report, like all his letters before, were read by unseeing eyes. By this time Dr Stevens, always a slight man, was positively skeletal. His skin was sallow and grey, and permanent dark grey circles perched on his cheekbones, badges of his refusal to let his body and mind sleep. He looked like an ill man. This did not help him in persuading his superiors to take him seriously in the audiences that his fanatical persistence had won him. The eyes of his superiors saw the sick man in front of them, while the doctor's words were heard with deaf ears. When Dr. Stevens had left the room, the officers looked around at each other, at a loss at what to say. Doesn't he know the war is over? A senior officer ventured. The offhand remark set the tone for the others. There's obviously something very wrong with the man. You can see it in his eyes. One of the captains suggested that they send him for psychiatric testing. Another reminded them all that this Kiwi had performed absolute wonders during the war. He had performed, according to the records, 3,283 operations in field conditions in the space of two years. Eyebrows were raised at this. Uh, by golly, passed the senior officer's lips. The poor ill man was a hero and deserved a hero's care. The consensus was to send him to a sanatorium, a rather upmarket one, reserved for the upper echelons of the army, the very best care in all His Majesty's armed forces, only the best for the poor, exhausted Kiwi doctor. At the said facility, if anything, Patient Stevens' hysteria escalated, and he warned that the Maori race would be wiped out completely if the virus got back to New Zealand, and that no troops should be allowed to return for a quarantine period of three months.
This recommendation made it into the psychiatric report on patient Stevens, submitted to the same board of officers who'd shown him such compassion in bypassing protocol and placing him in the best possible care. One Kiwi officer joked that there would be a mutiny if they kept the New Zealand boys away from their wives any longer. A rather witty English captain retorted that rather there would be civil war in England if the Kiwis didn't go home, seeing as how the strapping New Zealanders were proving something of a hit with the English ladies. There was a ripple of chuckles at this, followed by some serious concern nods of heads and it was decided that Dr. Stevens should be allowed to stay at the upmarket hospital for officers until such time as he would be deemed mentally sound, at which time he would be sent back to his native land. In a world at war, there is usually someone listening, and in this case it was the network of a young American diplomat, Alan Dulles, who along with his mentor, Colonel House, was doing a rather good job of catching America up with the long-established spy networks of their European counterparts. Where better to hear about the secrets of their friends and allies than in their elite hospital for the upper echelons of the military? Dulles had posted in the building two nurses, posing as Canadians, as the British, despite nominally owning Canada, could rarely tell the difference between Canadians and Americans. For the price of a good meal and the promise of a trip to Paris at the end of it all, they told Dulles who was in the building and all that they heard said. It was a bright idea, but the whole operation produced rather disappointing results. After three months of running the informants, Dulles thought the only positive thing that was likely to come out of it was some fun with the nurses once they came to Paris, as the top echelons of the British military were either incredibly disciplined or knew very little about what was going on in their own political and military establishment. Dulles reserved his judgment as to which it was. In one of the dispatches, it was reported that a young doctor was very stressed about a flu virus, one that was being spread through the troops and would be spreading around the world as people returned home from war. It was a flu virus for the fit, and it affected Polynesian populations worse than whites. Dulles couldn't really fathom what to do with this news, so he sent it to the military medical board, who in turn didn't know what to do with it, so sent it on to the US Health Department. Someone in the US Health Department saw the word Polynesian in the report and forwarded it to the medical centres on Hawaii and American Samoa, and then rejoined the victory celebrations. The medical staff at Risedown Sanatorium were becoming increasingly worried by patient Stevens. His mania was increasing. He now considered the Spanish flu to be the product of German biological warfare. The interviewing doctor asked Dr. Stevens why would it be called Spanish flu if it came from Germany? Because they are the only ones not stupid enough to censor information about the fact that everyone is dying of the virus, you idiot. After being locked up against his will for three months, Dr. Stevens had dispensed with civility. These asses in white coats weren't worthy of it. Can't you see? The Germans used our own censorship to smuggle this past us. It's payback for starving them out. They release a bug that only works on the well-nourished, on the strong. Dr. Stevens would have shaken the passivity out of the man in front of him if he could, but they had straightjacketed him some time ago. What do you think Nock and Curran have been doing for these past four years of the war? The greatest bacteriologists in the world, both Germans, and they haven't published a single paper in four years? Think they've been on bloody holiday all the time while every other academic in Germany has been devising bright new ways to kill us? I'm sure I can look into that for you, Dr. Stevens, but now I have to visit other patients. 
I will get the nurse to bring you your medication. With that, the impassive-faced man in the white coat got up and left the room. Behind him, the excitable, skinny New Zealand doctor screamed after him. This is not the end! Mark my words, this is not the end! Afterward. The Spanish influenza killed somewhere between 50 and 100 million people worldwide in 1918-1919, as much as 5% of the world's population. This compares to the 20 million people killed in the four years of the Great War. And to give it its historical perspective, it killed more people in 24 weeks than the AIDS virus has killed in 24 years, and more than the Black Death killed in 100 years. It remains the worst pandemic in human history. Western Samoa, which was under New Zealand control, was the worst affected place on the planet. A crippling 90% of the population was infected, 30% of adult men, 22% of adult women and 10% of children died. By contrast, the flu was kept away from the neighbouring island, American Samoa, where Governor John Martin Poyer imposed a blockade as a result of a memo he received from the US Health Department. Unlike podcasts one and two, this is a story inspired by real people, rather than being about a real historical person. Most of the stories in this series are about real people and what they really did. However, for certain subjects, I felt it was better to have a composite character. Dr. Stevens never existed and was drawn up based upon accounts I read from frontline doctors, doctors dealing with the Spanish flu away from the war zone and also after the war had finished and from bacteriologists working at the time. I would also like to clarify that it is out of the question that German bacteriologists actually manufactured the Spanish flu virus as even being able to cultivate viruses was in its infancy in 1918 and the structural manipulation of viruses was decades in the future when science fiction would become science fact such as the combining of smallpox and the Ebola viruses. However, during World War I, bacteriologists on both sides were employed by the military to try and create the first human-manipulated biological weaponry. And there were failed attempts during the course of the war by the Germans to use anthrax as a weapon. It seems so serendipitous that there was a flu that struck down the strong and the healthy as the relatively well-fed allies, buoyed up by fresh troops from America, pushed back the half-starved Germans, that I thought that the overwrought Dr. Stevens could have started to make these connections in his broken-down mind. The statistics of his field operations are those of a real doctor. The spying by the Americans inside British military hospitals is real. The facts about the success of the quarantine on American Samoa as opposed to Western Samoa are real. And of course, the unimaginable death toll of the Spanish flu is also real. The Spanish flu itself is today alive and well again, thanks to science. In 2005, it was successfully taken from the lungs of a 1918 Native American victim who had been buried in the permafrost. The aim was to try and identify why the Spanish flu was so deadly and to work out how to prevent another pandemic like it from happening again. Well, let's hope that this virus that naturally killed itself off after killing more than 50 million of us will not unnaturally find its way back into our lungs as a result of this Jurassic Park-esque resurrection. So, that is my rather dark ending to my podcast about the final month of 1918. I'll open the new year with new hope with a story from the new 
or rather newly reformed, country of Poland, and reading it will be a new voice, as the wonderfully talented actor Robert Gulacic, who played Vincent van Gogh in Loving Vincent, is going to be my guest reader for January's episode, which will be released on the 26th of January, the 100-year anniversary of the first ever elections based on universal suffrage in Poland's history. I would like to thank Atanas Valkov for his music, Michael Jankowski and Noiseroom for their sound design, and also Mickey Wenzel, who assisted with the sound editing, and of course, thanks to all of you for listening. I wish you all a wonderful and flu-free Christmas and New Year. <laughs>